So it's been really lovely to see the group Sanzen, uh, each person sharing their facet of this jewel. And we can't see all the sides without each other. And so often compassion is awakened when we hear someone else share what we thought was our own private hell. Someone shared about how they had come into the group feeling really indifferent and then heard someone else share a little bit about their you know, struggles on the cushion and in practice and life and really experienced this emergence of compassion and an urge, a wish to say something to, to help, to let them know, oh, I've been there. So this step of outward-directed compassion, which is the same thing that Metta is pointing to, this goodwill, this wishing ease, wishing peace for another. Compassion just uh, is, is the same thing, but it's directed towards suffering. Metta, loving-kindness, goodwill, it's, that's indiscriminate. Nothing has to happen. Everybody, everybody gets that. So as we expand this, this goodwill outward, as we're moving through this sashin, we can see how that arising is natural. That experience that I just described happened naturally. It wasn't contrived. It, it arose without any thinking or effort. So where does it come from? Where does the sound of the bird come from? Where does it go? The sound of the bell. Where does it come from? Where does it go? Where do the thoughts come from? Where do they go? Can these questions all be boiled down by science? What's measurable? The identity of relative and absolute that we chant says, the four elements return to their nature like a child to its mother. The four elements return to their nature like a child to its mother. What has given birth to the four elements? What has given birth to fire, to air, to earth, to water? What is more fundamental than the elements, than hot or cold, than any judgment? Sometimes when people talk about what an excellent therapist they have, or a particularly supportive clergy person, or a wonderful supportive friend, 
people often say that that person is not at all judgmental. And a friend like this can hold you for a time and see you in this way and help you see yourself in this way, non-judgmental. Now, they might still tell you some hard truths, but they won't abandon you even if you are messy or falling apart. And your Buddha nature can do this, can be a friend like this, as we have learned from Daihang Sunim. And I just want to reiterate a little of the story that we're echoing through this sashin, this beautiful example of self-compassion. She tells the story of a young man who was working as a farm servant for a rich man and became so tired and exhausted from the hard work and uh, the deprivation and was so lonely and uh, in such pain. But he began to talk to himself in words like this, you have a hard time. Yes, and I'm so tired. How about taking a rest for a while? That is a good idea. In this way, he questioned and answered himself using comforting and sympathetic words, encouraging himself when no one else did. So in this recounting, she says, the young man began to be kind to himself. He comforted and encouraged himself. Sometimes he cried with exhaustion and despair, but he no longer felt completely alone. And Daihong Sunim is a Korean teacher, so she says, in this way, he came to know his own she calls it gu in jong. And so in this, this tra translation of gu in jong is Buddha nature, is a reliable friend. She also calls it the foundation or the root. It can be called the original face or the one mind, the true heart. I ran across another word that's related to Buddha nature called Tathagata Garbha. And you might think of the echo of Kishitagarbha, Jizo, Bodhisattva. Kishitagarbha means earth womb. So Tathagata Garbha, Buddha womb. Some, a place of pure potential a place to nurture that potential. Daihong Sunim also calls this the furnace. She, she refers to Buddha nature as a furnace, that everything comes from it and you can put everything into it. It transforms and purifies everything. And she entrusts her whole life to it that it has a transformative and purifying power. I want to share another story from Dayong Sunim. As we mentioned before, she had a very difficult life. 
from age eight, wandering in the woods with her displaced family, starving and essentially living in the woods to avoid her abusive father. She left and basically started taking care of herself, living on her, on her own, ordained in her 20s, and then went back into the forest to live for 10 years. So she tells a story about that particular time. So she's talking about her teacher under whom she ordained. She says, Han Am Sanim once told me that you can see your original face only after dying. At the time, I thought he meant that the body must die. Later, I realized what he really meant. It happened while I was wandering in the mountains. One day, I suddenly discovered my throat was covered in blood. I thought to myself, oh good, it's time for me to die. I was happy. So she thought she'd see her original face right then. I was weak from hunger at the time, so I just lay on the ground, staring at a rock. The next thing I knew, a snake came crawling out from under the rock. I was neither frightened nor surprised. I just lay there and watched it. The snake was busy trying to move a leaf onto the rock. I felt some strange communication with the snake telling me that as I had saved the snake before, it was saving me by bringing a special leaf to eat. The snake also conveyed that it would like to embrace me, but as that was impossible, it simply disappeared. I cried when the snake left because my mind and the snake's mind had become one, joining together in the one mind. I cried out of gratitude and for the love and compassion that unite all creatures in the one mind. The snake had grasped my situation and understood me completely. We must not despise other creatures. One insignificant microbe eventually evolves into a human being. You and I were insignificant microbes in our previous lives. Should we not continue to evolve in this life, we may find ourselves animals again. All the world's creatures, even microbes, are really nothing but myself. There's no reason for human beings and animals not to embrace each other, for they are each other. After the snake left, I crushed the leaf on a stone and ate it, along with some water. I had no thoughts of living or of saving my life. If I had ever had such thoughts, I might have been frightened in the forest, where I had no company save for wild animals. Instead, I was as comfortable as if I were in my mother's arms. I ate the leaf because the snake had brought it for me, and it was the next thing to do. The leaf stopped my throat from bleeding. For ages afterwards, I tried to find the same leaves, but I could not. The leaf had been given to me by the snake, and at the time I could not understand this mysterious gift. She says, I'm telling you these stories so that you may learn from them. I have waited a long time to tell you all this, and I want you to realize how serious it is. If we just laugh our way through life, we will learn nothing. We must understand the vastness and greatness of the mind. That is why I tell you my stories and experiences, so that you will grasp how great the one mind is. The one mind is the great principle which protects the universe, which is its creation. 
The one mind has existed since the beginning. It exists today and will exist forever. It existed before the Buddha was born 2,500 years ago. It is the truth. It is permanent and it is everything. All beings have this one mind. Despite its presence in all living beings, it is only one mind. There is no difference between the mind in one and the mind in the other. So she uses this beautiful metaphor of if you have a house and you put a fence around it, then that's called your property. And then other people have their fences around their property. But if you remove all the fences, then it's all just one property. It's all just one land. That's how she's referring to this. She says, in truth, the one mind originally belongs to nobody in particular. It is the life of us all. Let us pull down the fences of discrimination and become the one mind again. So this judging, this fence building, has its place. It's not inherently bad. The discriminating mind is needed for discernment. But when we habitually, harshly judge ourselves and are stuck in patterns of doing so that are formed around strategies of avoidance or grasping or or ignorance, that's when it's that's when it's a problem. So I want to offer you a quote, a couple of quotes really, from uh, John Wellwood. He is a psychologist and a practitioner. He's deceased, and he uh, has been a really influential person in merging spiritual practice and psychology. Uh, He coined the term spiritual bypassing in 1984. So he talks about the importance of loving ourselves. As Bancho talked about yesterday, that metta is the hardcore practice, that loving oneself is, is the toughest, hardest practice. He says this, Genuine self-love is not possible as long as you are resisting, avoiding, judging, or trying to manipulate and control what you experience. Whenever you judge what you're experiencing, I shouldn't be having this experience. It's not good enough. I should be having some better experience than this one. You're not letting yourself be as you are. And this aggravates the core wound of I'm not as accept I'm not acceptable as I am. I'm not acceptable as I am. Genuine self-love is not possible as long as you are resisting, avoiding, judging or trying to manipulate and control what you experience. Whenever you judge what you're experiencing, I shouldn't be having this experience. It's not good enough. I should be having some better experience than this one. 
you're not letting yourself be as you are. This aggravates the core wound of I'm not acceptable as I am. And just a little definition about what spiritual bypassing is. He says it's a tendency to use spiritual practice to bypass or avoid dealing with certain personal or emotional unfinished business. This desire to find release from the earthly structures that seem to entrap us. The structures of karma, conditioning, body, form, matter, personality, has been a central motive in the spiritual search for thousands of years. So there's often a tendency to use spiritual practice to try to rise above our emotional and personal issues, all those messy, unresolved matters that weigh us down. I call this tendency to avoid or prematurely transcend basic human needs, feelings, and developmental tasks, spiritual bypassing. So this harmful judging is not discernment. It's judging ourselves harshly. Uh, Judging is a kind of thinking. Um, But we can't think our way to awakening. We have to set down these familiar tools. And then hearing some of the people's accounts of what's happening in the session, it, it, it was familiar to me. And, and Hogan Roshi's voice was echoing in my mind, countless sashin that I would hear him say, drop the story. Don't judge your practice. Don't, don't make conclusions. So something to look for is a stuckness stuckness and harsh self-judgment and self-rejection. This is the inner critic. There's nothing stuck in this flowing, moving world. A priest and writer, Henri Nguyen, says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. So why reject our feelings when they're as much a part of this world as anything? John Wellwood distinguishes, and I think it's just a semantic point of clarity, he distinguishes feeling and emotionality. So his definitions of these, he says, feeling is a form of intelligence. It's the body's direct, holistic, intuitive way of knowing and responding, which is highly attuned and intelligent. Unlike emotionality, which is a reactivity that sweeps you away, feeling helps you go within and connect with where you are. He says, Even if we've been doing spiritual practice for decades, we still find these big, raw, messy feelings coming up. Maybe a deep reservoir of sorrow or helplessness. But if we can acknowledge these feelings and open ourselves nakedly to them, we're moving toward greater openness in a way that's grounded in our humanness, 
We ripen into a genuine person through learning to make room for the full range of experiences we go through. Sometimes these chants leap out at us. This uh, Today, the meal chant just leapt out at me, abiding in this ephemeral world like a lotus in muddy water, the mind is pure and goes beyond. Abiding in this ephemeral world, like a lotus in muddy water, the mind is pure and goes beyond. Is it messy or is it pure? It's both. This purity of mind is referred to in another one of our chants. When all is seen with equal mind, to our self-nature we return. This single mind goes right beyond all reasons and comparison. I guess as a Zen practitioner, there's a unique kind of misery to comparing our practice to other people's practice, right? What a, what a tempting thought to just go right beyond it. And maybe, maybe we can. With pure acceptance, not a grudging acceptance, not an acceptance in order to change something, but a true surrender to the fact that we're part of something larger. And we abide in this ephemeral world. This is where we live, with our roots in the mud. Ephemeral, like a lotus. Ephemeral like this sashin, like this day, like this breath, like this human life. It's this impermanence that can be a sweetener, that can help us see the shimmering luminosity of the flow of life. In the group practice, one person said that their meta practice towards their family Uh, brought forward a realization of how much they love them. And given that, how to proceed, how to be with them. We've all had that experience of thinking that we had more time to connect with someone and the clarity of that coming forward again and again. The leaves, the plants, each life this sashin, our feelings, this earth, it's all just here for a little bit. Constantly forming and transforming, a dance we're all participating in, whether we think so or not. So here's a poem, a meditation on life and death. Everything falls apart, starting with our jaws, as we meet death with open-mouthed amazement. The bacteria in our bellies loosed like a tsunami, liquefying and changing the landscape, not to mention the janitorial crew, millions strong and teeming, indeed affirming the lives of flies, thanks to whom the traveling swallows snapping their beaks audibly in the fields, feed baby birds with hungry open mouths.
The four elements return to their nature like a child to its mother. And we abide in this ephemeral world. This includes everything, pushes away nothing. This utterly non-judgmental presence Our mindfulness practice is defined by this. One of the main attributes in the definition of mindfulness, awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Awareness has no location, infuses everything, utterly non-judgmental. For example, in the dark, it's literally harder to discriminate between things. You could test this out for yourself. Be careful of your toes, though. If you do that, you might run into things. The identity of relative and absolute says, the dark makes all words one. The brightness distinguishes good and bad phrases. Affirming faith in mind says, If mind does not discriminate, all things are as they are, as one. To go to this mysterious source frees us from all entanglements. When all is seen with equal mind, to our self-nature we return. The single mind goes right beyond all reasons and comparison. The dark makes all words one. If mind does not discriminate, all things are as they are, as one. There's a deep appreciation for the multiplicity of life. We could look at our feelings in a granular way. For some of us who don't look at our feelings very much, try to avoid them, we have kind of a, you know, eight crayons in the box language for feelings. But the fact is we could have the 64 box with the sharpener. There's a lot of feelings that we could really look at the the difference, the beauty of them all. And and that's just how nature is. If you just even look at moss, there's all these different kinds of moss. I mean, you say like, there's some moss, but do you know how many species of moss there is? I looked it up. Uh, It's a lot. (laughs) One time, Chosen Roshi had a plate full of moss that she brought to the breakfast table and talked about all the mosses and looked at all the different varieties. There were like six or seven of those varieties. And maybe out... In the fields, you've seen some different kinds of moss. They're all different, have different qualities, soft or sturdy. Some of them are real sturdy. They look real delicate, but they're sturdy. Do you have a number in your mind about how many species of moss there is? Should we transgress the Zen form and have you shout it out? How how many are there, do you think? 
million. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have too big of minds. 12,000 12, species. In Oregon? No. Well, at least that it wasn't specified. 12,000 species of moss. That's a lot still, you guys. <laughs> so we may have that many feelings, too. And what's, what would be wrong with that? Right? Like there's this many species of moss. Why wouldn't there be so many feelings in a human life? The brightness distinguishes good and bad phrases. To go to this mysterious source frees us from all entanglements. This is what Daihang Sunim talks about. To go to this mysterious source frees us from all entanglements. To just, it's all going back into the furnace. We're all. It's it's all it's all right here. When all is seen with equal mind, to our self nature we return. Like a child to its mother. This single mind goes right beyond all reasons and comparison. What a relief. And this allows the beauty of the world to emerge, the preciousness of each day, of each human life. This ephemeral world of a dance, of fireworks, the beauty of the flowers on the altar. It's been lovely to watch them fade a little bit. They're fresh now, but they'll fade, and, and that's beautiful too. The poet Issa has one of the more famous haiku about this that he wrote after the death of his daughter. So this world of dew is a world of dew, and yet, and yet. What a, what a big heart to, to accept the truth of impermanence so thoroughly. And yet, allowing that heart to break thoroughly. So I want to close with a poem. I wasn't sure if I was going to. It's called Eagle Poem. And as I was writing this talk, I kept hearing an eagle today. 
So I decided to include it. And I think it is another beautiful expression, just as beautiful as our chants, honestly. It's uh, called Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo, who is an internationally renowned performer and writer of the Muscogee or Creek Nation. And she is serving her second term as the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle, that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you see ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this. And breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle, rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. Thank you.